Do, do you guys mind if we start by my um, just going over some of my problems? Oh, okay. Okay, and maybe you've got some advice. All, All right. right, so we're here in uh, Oral Argument World Headquarters. We are. Um, live. This is the Global Center. We have a live guest today, which is something we haven't done in a while. I think all our guests have been alive. I think he's, it's that he's here with us in the studio. Yeah, it's a different kind of live. I think we can all agree it's a different kind of live. It is. It's There's no delay. It's right. not a... An There's elect- no latency. Right. It's not an electronically delivered uh, simulacrum. Live to us. Mark McKenna, welcome. Thank you. Okay, so... Willkommen, bienvenue. To be back live and in color, right? Since I did it on, only on the phone yes. one time. Yes, together again for the first time. Here we are. So here's here's the problem in headquarters right now. All right. Okay. So I I um I can't take a shower in my own bathroom. Shower's oh broken. This has gotten very personal very fast. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I I feel like I need some. You need some help. Help or sympathy you need some or counsel or something. Yeah. All right. So I have to go upstairs to the to the guest room. Okay. To to, to bathe. Right. Okay. Um and and of course we've had someone in there as one does for a while. You know what I mean? I do. Not in the bathroom. <laughs> in the living space. Yeah, we, we've we've been putting yeah, we've been putting space. someone up as we tend to. Okay, I've got my my porch steps are falling apart. Which porch steps? The ones that you come in to headquarters with. Oh, in the front door. Yeah, yeah, they're just okay. all loose. Eventually, right. someone's going to slip and fall, and I'm going to be subject to some kind of tort action. Okay, we can work on that. Yeah, um, and Mark teaches tort law, so that's, he's going to be very helpful on that. Third, my dishwasher is broken. Yes, we saw that. Yeah, that was happening as you came in, yep. and I was spending hundreds of dollars. Mm. In an effort to maybe solve the problem. Yeah. I had, a, I had my refrigerator fixed recently, and it, too, cost a few hundred dollars. So I'm right there with you in appliance suffering land. Okay. Do you have broken steps or a broken shower? Uh, no. Okay. So I'm, you're better off than I am. Clearly. Okay. And I also have a porch, which is kind of falling apart. Which porch? It's rotting. Yeah, the one up at, uh, out of the back, out the of back, back door. Porch. Yeah, okay. it's, it's not great. No? And there's, there's just other stuff, too. It's like, a, it's like a tort death trap. Yeah. It is. It's like... This is exciting to be here now that we know yeah. we can't really get out without getting injured. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> how are we in this room? Is You'll this room all set? <laughs> so, so far, so good. The other room, of course, had the, had the drippage from the shower when it was leaking. So, right. I'm, look, I, I know this is what people tune in for, to hear my complaints and oh, problems. And, and this is only going to become a bigger and bigger part of the show as we get to be older and older men, yeah, I think. Uh, we'll start to complain about our aches and pains and everything. Correct. But, look, this is the fruition of what we planned when we bought this house. We said we want a runner-downer because we are not fixer-upper types. And indeed, <laughs> that's, that's happening. What's are, a runner-downer? Oh, like that's, it's that's it's a, in good shape when you buy all, it and it's just sort of It's, it's all ready for you to run it down. Uh, I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and there are options. Like, you know, so the house is set up for things to break because yeah. you just moved to other rooms. And that's our plan at this point, just so you know. <laughs> just moved to different we parts of the house. several bathrooms. Yeah. And start using other bathrooms. Exactly. And when that, so eventually that one upstairs is going to break. Sure. And then we'll move to the kids' bathroom. Hopefully right. they'll be in college by yeah, then. Yeah, they'll be gone by then. Yeah. Hopefully. So uh, that's that's where I am right now. So what do you think we can do? I don't even know. I, mean, many I, of these I suspect things, it's going to involve cheese. It Definitely. Um, <laughs> although one can't help but notice many of these uh, simply reflect your bad choices. <laughs> so there's only there's only so much we can do to help. How did they? Really. That's why we're going to help him pick cheese, and that's it. <laughs> maybe that's going to be the launching point for right. better choices. I guess the other problem is this: this new Radiohead album still has not come out. Mm. I'm sitting around waiting for that like an idiot, and it's not coming out. Yeah. Um. 
It's just, it, Mark, you've caught me at a bad time. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. It's been cloudy. I haven't been able to look out in my telescope very much. Well, today it's is nice very today. clear. So yes. I'm hoping that tonight we will be able to indulge in some telescopy. Yeah, absolutely. The behavior of looking through a telescope. Absolutely. I'm working my way through the... Or teloscopy, Through the Messier catalog. Would it be telescopy or teloscopy or telescopy? Telos- telescopy or teloscopy, I think, has to do with uh, an, an invasive procedure. <laughs> ah, that's looking up the back door there. So let's, I, let's... I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> this is we are, but right. tele so telescopy is looking through a telescope. This may this is Mark. I am sorry. I mean, this had all the makings because Mark's joining us for one of the best episodes we've ever done. Look, and I'm so connecting far, it very clearly to it is. Yeah. You complained about the poor weather. It is very clear today. That means later on, if it stays clear, we will have great telescope sky weather. Right? It's actually more complicated than that. But yes, it turns out that there there is uh, there's not just uh, cloud cover. There is also a, a value called transparency okay. and seeing. And the, these three different quantities determine the, the quality of the sky. My hope is that <laughs> last time, so last time I was here and the yeah. telescope was out, yeah. there, was, there was a lot of cloud cover. Yes. That will not be true today, I believe. Given my luck, given the run of things, mm. unexpected clouds will move in, but okay. we'll see. We'll, Can I just make one request, and that is that yeah, we please. don't use the telescope on the porch that's falling apart? That's exactly where we use it, actually. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. So I'm going to cut all this out, of course. No. And <laughs> he lies about that. Sometimes. Sometimes. Pretty much all the time. Yeah. I felt like I needed to get all that off my chest, though. Okay. You, you seem very in very good spirits for someone whose life is, is falling apart as mm. is. Yeah. And I've been doing a lot of editing. I mean, so I'm doing a whole other podcast series. Yeah. For an audience of 19, my legal theory class. This is an online class that we're offering. It's live online and, and as part of that. So you've um, got some synchronous and some asynchronous. Exactly. And you're recording the asynchronous parts. Right. So, you know, doing this podcast, we kind of ease into it yeah. like this. We, this is some conversation. Eventually it becomes interesting. Yeah. Right? Uh, <laughs> Last few minutes. Do you know what it's like to record? And I know you do. We've talked about it. But do you know what it's like to sit there and try to record just yourself talking about a topic? The important thing is that you never listen to it. That's key. I have all my classes video recorded and put on, and I hate watching them because I yes. just, you know, Why do you do that? Because I ban computers in the classroom okay. because that makes the classroom components so much better. Yeah. But some of the students are really anxious that then they're going to miss something. So I have all the classes recorded and then they're all put in a cloud, in a box folder. And so that they can watch so what they, they need watch to. And if so, they feel like they missed something. Exactly. And so uh, I say to them at the beginning of the semester and it always proves to be true at the beginning, some of you will be anxious about this, and you'll watch them because you'll think you missed something. And then at the end, you'll realize that you've actually paid better attention because you're not typing. And right. Then no one's watching. So I see all the data, and it's like at the beginning, people watch, and at the end, no one's watching. But never watch yourself. Oh, that's, <laughs> yeah, I'm never. totally on board with that. I banned Classroom. laptops in the classroom last year because of all the data. Like yeah. the data are, are overwhelming yeah. about – I think it's unambiguous. Yeah. And, and so I felt it's getting close to like malpractice to allow yeah. laptops. And, and this and – well, the year before <laughs> – the year I'm committing be- malpractice. Well, the year before, I had given the students these studies, and I and, and I said, okay, I'm not going to ban them, but I urge you not to not yeah, to use them. And here work. are the here's the evidence, and and the evidence, and I showed them specifically the studies that say even if you're aware of the evidence right. and you're trying not to take a transcript or do these other things, it you're still turns it. out that you do worse. The problem is, is because it becomes a race to the bottom, right? So they can resist for a little while, but then they sit there and they hear other people typing, right. and they think they're going to get something down that I'm going to miss. Yep. Yeah, and so then they feel like they're compelled to do it. So that's I why told I them that to too cut this that year. Off the recording. I told them so this this semester I've decided for the one class which is two and three L's I'm not going to ban them and I'm going to try a different kind of uh, warning See, or I'm, something and, and, and indeed a lot of them some of them are handwriting 
And I, and I even tried to inure them to that effect by saying, you're going to hear the clickety-clack noise and you're going to think you're missing something. But in fact, the evidence is such that, in fact, I would bet my hypothesis is that you will do better if you take no notes at all than if you use the laptop. I think, I mean, certainly if you're doing handwriting, and especially I think for lawyers, because there's going to be a lot of circumstances in their career when they're actually going to have to take notes by hand. Yeah. And there's a skill in learning how to th- hear and think about what's important enough to write down. Cause you, and sift you know, it as you're hearing it. And, yeah. Because you know you won't be able to write by hand fast enough to get it all down, right? right? So you right. got to really hear. And so that's actually much more important. And I would say my, I've been doing it for several years and I think the experience is, it's not even comparable. The classroom is so much better. So they did better. I, I have to say that the final exams were better. seem to me to be better than in years. All right. So guide yeah. me through the following quandary that I have okay. about, uh, this is, this is the corner, this is the corner of the show. We'll get to knitting with Joe later. Yes. This is Joe's quandary. Yeah. Thank okay. You. Yeah. JQ. Um, I have a knitting thing for later. Truly. Uh, <laughs> so I, in some of my courses, try to make use of more innovative teaching materials like electronically offered materials as opposed to traditional print case books, for example. And I feel that there's a bit of a contradiction in saying, you know, the materials for the course are, are principally electronic. You can print what you want. Right. Right. But you can't bring a device to class on which you could look at that thing while we were talking about it. I feel like I'm trapped a bit in having provided them that. So I, so I'm teaching a class this semester that I have students take uh, some students in the class are in London and in DC. And so they're remote video conferenced in, and there are live students in the classroom too. Um, because of the nature of the technology that you can only have two things on the screen at any given time. So the students in London can either see me and the students in DC, or they can see me and the, and what's on the PowerPoint slides. And so I always have opted to have them always be able to see the other people because I want them to feel like they're in, in the class. So what that means is they can't see this the PowerPoint presentation. So what I do is upload them all to the box before class. Yeah. And so I've just said to them, I've made an exception, which is I think would work in your class. I've just said, you can have your laptop out for the purpose of looking at the slides, but not to be typing. Okay. So then I've got a, so, so one solution would be, I'd be permitting them to have their laptops with them, but I would be prohibiting them from typing on those laptops. Mm-hmm. So I have to be prepared. To if someone, for example, forgets about that and starts typing something, I have to be prepared to do what? Talk to them after class about the fact that they were typing? I think or watch someone tell them, hey, you shouldn't be typing? Yeah. Or myself tell them, hey, you shouldn't be typing? I'd be surprised if you have the problem. I mean, I think if you make clear like why you're doing it and... Uh, that's a that's a totally fair point. I'm, I, I'd I think, be surprised too. And nevertheless, I could find myself in the middle of it yeah. and I would need to be prepared to do something about it, right? right. Yeah, and I think you'd probably do it after class, but... Last year, I allowed tablets, low-speed data entry devices, and some people used them. A lot of people just printed the materials and showed up. The, the, the key thing is that you slow down the ability to write things down to a point where it's, as, as you said, Mark, it's impossible to do anything but do a little bit of synthesis. Mm-hmm. So you think the keyboard on a tablet is sufficiently clunky that... For this generation, 10 years from now, with the kids who grew up typing on iPhones and stuff, you know, they're going to be <laughs> flying through it. So... You know, the, the goal is always going to be, and, and you have to adjust based, you know, you have to adjust based on your trust of the students. Do you trust them to, to use the laptop for one purpose and not another in your example? Right. Do you trust them to do some amount of synthesis rather than, you know, just turning on Siri or something like that? What you want is, is for that, the class to be yet another instance where some, you know, where the neurons are rearranging themselves 
in response to what you're saying, right? Then that summarizing thing seems to be key in that, which is why it's also fascinating to me, these studies that show that when you, when you take a test, you learn. I don't know if you, you guys too, but I, I thought when I was in, uh, when I was in school and indeed when I first became a professor that, boy, it's a drag that we have to actually have to go through the exam. I would love it if we could just say there would be an exam. Everybody thought there'd be an exam. And then at the last minute, we don't actually have to have one because everything, all the learning has been done, right? You do all the studying, the outlining and everything. There's no reason to go through with it. The evidence though is that there's every reason to go through with it because yeah, the, the act of matters. taking yeah. is uh, the exam is the act of like rearranging those neurons and doing things, which is a, you want to hit the students w- at as many points as you can with that action of, of not just taking in things and saying, I understand, I understand, I understand, I understand, but recombining what yeah. they know in different ways. And you can do that if that I, they either don't take notes at all or they take notes by longhand and therefore have to do some summarization. Then again, when they make their outline, then again, when they take the test and any other kind of yeah, like form that isn't even that to flag the obvious point, which is that when, um, when they're trying to take a transcript of the class, they're also much less likely to engage you and ask questions and react to the kind of problems you pose in class. And yeah. so, you know, if you if what if what if you value in class what I do, which is that I want them not just to sort of get information, but to figure out how to apply it. Yeah, I do that in class with them a lot, and they don't engage it when they're typing. When they're not typing, they're thinking the whole time, like, okay, I know where this is going. There's going to be a question here. And so they're thinking about that, and then they're likely to sort of to speak more. So, I mean, it, it might have the opposite problem, which is that then you have to actually sometimes shut down. There's like yeah. so much, like you got to get through the class. So there's so much conversation. I see that actually when I'm doing, when I'm reading something for research and especially something which is a little bit outside of my field and, and I, and I get the gist of it, but there'll be a paragraph which I know is important. And I'm, and I'm thinking I sh- what I'm trying to do is read it and summarize it over here in my notes, mm-hmm. but at some point, I think why this seems all important, and so I copy and paste it. And I know for sure that I'm more likely to forget that yeah. passage, right? And but at some point, you, your brain gets kind of an overload, and you're just like, I just have to get through this because I need. There's some certain things I need to get done, and I think that's exactly like the experience of students. Even if they want to uh, summarize and do other things, eventually they kind of fall behind in the in what you're saying, and they say, okay, I'm just going to type down what he what right. he says for right now. Right. I wonder if that kind of goes on and i think you buy yourself out of that a little bit by them knowing there's a backup because there's a video right yeah so if they're if they're getting behind and they're missing something like it's okay they can always go back and fill it in but ultimately you've made the judgment that they're that that because of the competitive pressures and and maybe that's even worse and of course that they know they're going to be graded on a curve that you say look i'm just going to take away this tool from you because even though i could explain to you all day about how you're right. better off not using it you're not going to be able to make that choice so I'm going to move the floor myself to reposition The insidious it. tragedy of the commons of the clickety-clack sound. Right. Which is why when I do exams, too, I, I not all the time, but often will we'll give 10 minutes up front to read the exam without writing, highlighting, or making the clickety-clack noise. Inevitably, when you start time, someone starts, and then, uh, you know, other and people hear it, and get nervous hits, time, yeah. and you hear the, the, the ticking of the clock in the clickety-clack of the keyboard, right? right? And I really do think you get better answers if you just sit there and think about something for a little hmm. while. Um, so, so I do you that enforce sometimes. a 10-minute of reading only? Which doesn't come out of their time. Of course, it's a little arbitrary, because yeah. I set the time arbitrarily anyway, but, you know, I said, I'm not going to start the time until the end of these 10 minutes, and all pens down. It's not arbitrary. Nothing. Well, it's just, it's just up to you. It's up. Yeah. It's but autocratic. Since yeah. It, it is since, since I'm doing it, it's arbitrary. <laughs> uh, hmm, I have so many things I would want to ask you guys about and that, that the discussion already is brought up in my head. I mean, one thing we should do on the show eventually is talk like blue sky. How should we teach law? Mm. 
if we didn't have any, you know, we had no ABA requirements, there was no anything, like what's the best way to, to do? And, and inevitably that discussion is going to touch what the practice of law should look like. Right. Uh, should it be this guild-like thing? Should How much jargon? How hard is law really? All these things it touches and that's going to kind of back up into the instruction of it. Yep. And it's something I've not, you know, I've thought about pieces of, but at some point, I'd like to blue sky that. Maybe not today, but but we also want to talk IP since we've got Mark and you, Joe, here. We're both like IP. Much you know. more important than Mark is here. Uh, as I said to, uh, as I said at the presentation earlier, um, uh, Mark is certainly uh, uh, widely understood and quite correctly understood to be uh, one of the nation's leading trademark scholars. So you're right; it would be a tragedy if we did not take advantage. Uh, of just to be fair, here. what he actually said was. He might be in the top, you know, one or two or three or four, but he would probably say first. It kind of throws <laughs> no, me No, no, I said you, I said you might, but you might not, yeah. right? But, but I certainly many people would put you as number one or number two, whether or not you would as number one or number two huh? of being trademark law scholars in America. Of mm-hmm. course, mm-hmm. there's very little doubt of that, and everyone would have them in their top five. I think that's absolutely true. Where do you fall? Um, I nowhere near any of those numbers. Really? I'm strictly a double digit person. And when it comes to weight, I'm mu- very much a triple digit person. Um, but, but I digress. You're clearly so what IP topic? one, two or three in the hearts of oral argument. Then. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm one of the top three law professors in this room right now. I think that's absolutely <laughs> true. Um, and we are after all at oral argument world headquarters, yeah. but, uh, what IP things do we, I went back and listened a little bit to the episode we did before with Mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, On when we talk about design patent yeah. and functionality exclusions and some other things and, uh, but what IP stuff has been on our minds lately, on your mind lately? On you're, my mind. You're, well, you're such an objectionist. As an, uh, <laughs> as an IP expert myself, meaning not at all. <laughs> easily one of the top three in the room. Easily one of the top three opinion havers about IP in the in, <laughs> in this <laughs> house. Absolutely. Probably in the world. Yeah, yeah, that might be. I do have lots of opinions. And as we know, I'm an American and I'm entitled to my opinion. Indeed. And, and no matter how wrong it is. Yeah. You As know, a high-status American, you are entitled to punch the nearest hippie. <laughs> I mean, that is your birthright. Yeah, especially as a uh, as as a what did what he call <laughs> skyscraper lawyers? What did he call them? What high-rise lawyers? This is the same descent huh. by Justice Scalia. Okay, tall building lawyers. I think he called them. <laughs> well, obviously, that's not any of the lawyers in D.C. <laughs> that's right. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah they're so they're limited. excluded. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to take care of the problem of elitist tall building lawyers, all you need is some zoning code. Yeah. yeah, no tall buildings, which, which, which usually Scalia is a big fan of. Yeah, it's zoning right. regulation. That's right. Well, so I had t- two possible things. Ah, okay, one, cool. one, one I knew should, there would be something. I just well, had to dig at it a little bit. One maybe we'll save for another show. Oh, okay. The possibility of fair use for educational materials being expanded statutorily. Mm-hmm. Because I have a strong belief that any materials which are not made for the education market should be freely used in any K-12 or higher education setting indeed you and have that belief not so i would allow whole books to be copied i would allow everything to be copied so long as it's directed that educational setting is secured etc it unless it's made for the educational setting in which case the fourth factor of the fair use test i think kicks in with a vengeance and makes some sense i would like to talk about that at some point because i think it's a serious problem and i think we are shooting ourselves in the foot as a society by using worse materials i'm thinking of all the k-12 teachers who have to use worse materials because of yeah. copyright and it makes no sense it makes no sense so i mean we might be shooting ourselves somewhere considerably north of the foot so i, I so i agree <laughs> like with the you. knee hmm? like the knee and for example, example. Mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um so yeah i think we should talk about that intermission in between my two points okay intermission 
in two weeks. <laughs> in two weeks, we have a live show. We do. We do. We are going to be live, uh, broadcasting live from the hallowed halls of the University of Georgia School of Law. Yeah. Talking about law journals. Okay, we'll talk about maybe more on that next week. But, yeah. Uh, and and we'll, should we give out times? This is open to the public, isn't it? It is, but the you know the the uh, well the 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 law students I think will take care of uh, publicizing it. I don't okay, think we need to. Do we that. don't need to do you that. You don't want to be overrun by the fans. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, people would make people would fly in. Yeah, we need to approach this with some probity. I think some some reserve. Okay, the other issue potentially, and that's one I know you guys have been talking about, is this thing that I understand you guys were talking about today, and that's trademark in the um, First Amendment. Mm. So, what is your interest in the trademark? And First Amendment question. You mean aside from the generally malevolent force of the First Amendment yes, in our law? Aside from that, I don't think I'm going to be able to make you feel better about that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was telling you guys before before we got started that my Supreme Court discussion group last night uh, was discussing another you know fraught First Amendment case, the one about unions, the Friedrichs case, mm-hmm. where uh, the agency, public sector unions, yeah, these right. are agency fees being charged to um, required anyway for for even for just collective bargaining purposes that to right. to pay money is nece- is compelled speech now, even if it's for collective bargaining purposes or, yeah. or could potentially be depending on the case comes out. So. Certainly talking a lot about the First Amendment these days. Uh, it's the elephant in the room at the court, that's for sure. That's, a, that's not a mixed metaphor, but it is a rich metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not the donkey in the room. No, that's not what I meant. But Yeah, I no, no, I know, I know, I know <laughs> so, you didn't, but uh, it is a consequence, right? I don't know. We should just lay our cards on the table. We've talked about it before, and that is that inevitably you've got forces within the law that want to provide more freedom to people to use the existing power structures they have to exercise those powers. Right. And you want less equalization. And, and so that you're looking for constitutional guarantees that speak generally to freedom. And then you apply those constitutional guarantees in a zone in which the person will now be free to use the resources they have to accomplish other ends. And in the early part of the 20th century, this was freedom of contract and due process, which was guaranteeing a liberty of contract in order to you know, accomplish various ends, to strike down progressive legislation, et cetera. So the investiture of freedom in the Constitution was in the due process clause. And, and now it seems the First Amendment has been increasingly, is, not about prote- is less about protecting dissenters and has become increasingly a repository for Lochner-type freedoms, the freedom to use one's monetary resources to accomplish things without the constraint of government regulation. Further empowering the powerful. Yeah, I, that's a, yeah. I had a really long-winded way of saying it, which, of course, I'll cut out. Um, but <laughs> no, yeah, no. But that, so that's a backdrop. And is that is is that what's going on in this uh, in the trademark context? So it's interesting because the the vehicle for the case that for the, this is coming up right now. So most people think about this problem primarily now, at least as of late, uh, through the lens of the Washington Redskins uh, trademark issue. You know, where the, uh, the the trademark office canceled the registration for Redskins and some of the logos. Um, on the ground that they were disparaging, mm-hmm. the Redskins have been fighting that uh, all the uh, you know th- for years. Actually, um, this is the second go round of it. But then the the most recent case though that's really on this squarely on the First Amendment thing is actually about a band called the Slants. The Slants are an Asian rock band, um, and they uh, use it. That their trademark was re- rejected on the same grounds. The same ground was disparaging. And the irony of that is that they are actually, their claim actually is that they're trying to reclaim the term and try to take away its stigma by applying it to themselves. So they're actually um, 
the particular vehicle through which the, the First Amendment is going to wind up, I, I think very likely the Supreme Court's going to wind up saying that this is unconstitutional, this provision is unconstitutional. The particular vehicle through which that's going to come up actually probably doesn't fit the narrative you're talking about, even right. if maybe it, the broad trend does. Right. And so, so they're trying to use the uh, that phrase in the same way that that some black artists use the n-word and yeah. it's that that kind of that's the feeling. argument right that's the argument they're making so i mean it's you could see the 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 case about the redskins trademarks very much in the sort of narrative you're talking about which is that you know they adopted this mark at a time when you know there were, there was not enough political power to resist it because mm-hmm. it was pretty widely used and now there's sort of you know the political winds have turned against them but they want to be able to maintain it and, but the, these cases seem to me more in the heartland of a more traditional I don't know, traditional maybe the wrong, but the more traditional First Amendment, which is about protecting speakers of whatever power from the establishment of a government orthodoxy, right? Like a, 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 an idea orthodoxy, right? Rather than just using it as, a, as an empty vessel for protecting the powerful from regulations by equating speech to money and equating conduct to money. These are cases in which we wish people wouldn't use the word, um, you know, the R word, right? Mm-hmm. The word redskins, right? That it's, patently offensive I, someone who went around calling other people redskins wouldn't be welcome in my house yeah. right and, and and to what extent should that kind of cultural orthodoxy which i think is a good one be backed up by the government and and you know that's one of the famous strands of first amendment law is that mm-hmm. there shall be no orthodoxy here and the first amendment is what prevents that orthodoxy from occurring so that that seems a much more traditional and justifiable ground yeah, i mean that's certainly at least like you know one strain of the argument that's being made in the case i think that the question that, that you know is maybe fits with the, the the narrative you're talking about though is why is that argument finding fertile ground now? This is a provision that's existed in the federal statute for you know nearly a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, why now, when it's sort of been brushed aside, you know, in a couple of attempts prior, now all of a sudden it's like seems universally accepted that the Supreme Court's going to say, yeah, that's got to be right. That what's got to be right? Say that. that that this is unconstitutional because it's content based and viewpoint based, and you know, but but the, you know, it's not like people haven't raised this argument before. It's just that it was in an era where the First Amendment wasn't kind of running roughshod over everything in the way it was, and so it just didn't seat that argument. Now it's strikes most people as like the obviously right result, which I think mm-hmm. just tells you how politi- legal thought moves. So can you tell time. us like what what so what does the um the cancellation on these grounds. Can, what does it say? Specific, not you don't have to quote it, but like specifically, is it? Because I'm trying to. I want to go eventually, kind of fit it into whether it goes beyond fighting words and other. Yeah. Other, so do you know? The, yeah, the provision of the statute bars registration for scandalous, immoral, deceptive, or disparaging terms. Mm-hmm. So that th- something is disparaging of a particular group of people or a belief or something like like that. Um, and that's what so that's the basis for the refuse the, for the decisions in both when the. When the trademark office canceled the regist- the Redskins registrations, and also it was the basis for refusing the slants, was that it's disparaging of people of say, Asian descent. Does it say a group is disparaging of a of an ethnic group, or can it be like RepublicansSock.com? Yeah. dot com? No, be, it doesn't like, have to be an ethnic group; it's just some particular group. So you know, there has to be some defined group, but how it's defined, I think, is open. Yeah. So this seems unconstitutional as all get out. It, well, that's that's what the Federal Circuit just said. What do you think? I guess it depends on what you mean by what you think. So I think it's it certainly fits a bunch of strains, but it's uh, you know it isn't it's it's a denial of a government benefit. It's not a suppression of speech. 
which to me says that it's sounds like a constitutional conditions yeah. question. And I think that law is a mess and I don't know what to make of it. So, yes, it's putting a condition on the basis of speech. There's a lot of other parts of the Lanham Act that do that. So you have to think that it's particularly bad for them to put this condition on speech. Right. Or, or con- conditions on you know it being this speech rather than all the other grounds on which they can refuse the registration or that the, at least the government interest in this yeah. is not as not as big. And I think the argument for for the government saying that if we're if we're going to um set up and run this public registration system for um source indicators for commerce. Yeah. Um that it's within our discretion to say that um in the process of setting this all up, one thing we don't want to do uh is give one group of people an ability to throw sand in the social gears. Yeah. Uh, and pit groups against each other. Uh, and and uh, not because uh, we can stop groups from pitting themselves against each other. That's that it could be inevitable, and and so they'll find ways to do it. But but we don't have to help. Fine, right? So, we don't have to have right. our registry system be a tool that people can use to disparage one another. Right. So so what the Redskins are losing is the exclusive right to use the term Redskins in no in in a, in a similar. In, no, they're not losing that at all. In fact, they're losing some of the the benefits of registration do not extend to being able to assert your mark against other people. At least that's as it's traditionally been understood. Yeah. Right, you'd still have your cause of action, mm-hmm. um, but you you know the burdens of proof will be a little harder for you to meet. Um, uh, you won't be your your mark won't become uncontestable after a certain period of time in certain circumstances, etc. Mm-hmm. So, so no, it's but not. There, as, but, it's not even as if you okay, lose the right fine, to assert. But there will be cases that you will that you would lose. Uh, there are potential cases one could lose because sure. of the lack of registration, right? And yeah. you gain the benefit of not losing that in that category yeah. if you're able to register. I think it's actually the import stuff that you mentioned earlier today that's probably yeah. the most commercially. Yeah, you don't get if you don't have registration, you don't you don't get customs to stop importation at the border so mm-hmm. you have to sue people for civil and you know for infringement when they get in so actually one of the things joe said i think is actually traditionally is true that if you lose your registration you only lose the benefits of registration you don't lose your ability to enforce the mark but i think that's actually in question right now because we've had uh, one federal district court and then the panel decision in the tam case the case about the slants the decision that has most recently happened was it was on bonk but the panel decision actually said one of the reasons it's an unconstitutional condition is because the the consequence that flows from lack of registration is that you don't have an enforceable trademark at all right. anymore. That's a pretty remarkable thing for most the way most of us have been trained in trademark for like the last half a century. But that kind of argument is out there and it's floating around. So I think it's actually not obvious what the consequences would be of a of a cancellation. The more you th- cred- credence you give to that argument, the more it looks like a really significant. Right, a benefit that's that really would be, and therefore it would be wrong to withhold it. Yeah, on this ground, I want to think about uh, like a hypothetical where the statute says that you can only register trademarks that glorify the government. You know, that would be the 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 test for mm-hmm. whether unconstitutional conditions is, has any traction here. But the the other thing, let's go back though, if you don't mind, before that to kind of, if not first principles, some early principles. So we're talking about the Lanham Act, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And the the Lanham Act provides protections against uh, kind of free riding on others' marks in general, right? But but then registration provides particular benefits within the scheme of that act, right? Right. So tra- this traditional approach that you uh, – a traditional understanding of unregistered trademark that you describe. Can you tell us like under that understanding, if I'm the owner of the Washington Redskins and my trademark is canceled – 
and someone else starts making like Redskins footballs and other things, which would be in the same kind of zone of commerce and forget the famous marks, just assume that it's like in the heartland of trademark. What would be, what, what would practically, what would happen to my remedies and my ability to bring So suit? until a couple of years ago, what, what most people would have said is you would imagine that to be just like a universe in which you had never gotten us, tried to get a trademark registered in the first place. Mm-hmm. In which case you could assert a claim under Section 43A of the Lanham Act, a federal claim, and sue for uh, infringement of an unregistered trademark. And that when you did that, the standards for determining validity, for determining infringement, all of those would be exactly the same as if they had been for a registered mark. It's just that you would bear the burden on proving the validity of your mark because you don't have a registered mark. Mm -hmm. Um, There'd be certain arguments that couldn't be raised against your mark because you wouldn't, uh, that if you had a registration and long enough, those wouldn't be present in the circumstances. But otherwise, the civil litigation would look, for all intents and purposes, exactly the same. So in the the actual case of the Washington football team, would the litigation be any it seems to me they would have a very strong case like the because they've been using it right. for so long and, and it's an, it's an, it's inherently suggestive and right, it's, it, it's inherently distinctive excuse me and so yeah it, it's a it's, very strong mark it's not a it, that that particular circumstance is not a case where you could where you'd really imagine that the benefits of registration make much difference because they certainly make nationwide use of the mark so there's not going to be they're not going to be restricted to some particular geographic origin uh, region the, the big thing that I'm sure matters to them commercially is that they wouldn't be able to get customs to stop importation of counterfeit merchandise. Like a bunch of wa- Washington Redskins T-shirts jerseys coming stuff. in and yeah, stuff right. like that. And in the hypothetical you pose, someone starts making footballs that they yeah. try to brand in this way. Well, that's right in their area of commerce, as you said. Right. right. So if you think about a typical likelihood of confusion case, same mark, same kinds of goods and services, of course it's infringement. But in terms of the cause of action itself... Uh, you know, one, one consequence might be that if you've got the that you could imagine maybe with the registration, you make it more likely you can get summary judgment and get out on pleadings. But that's not the case. Is that right? No, now? no, yeah. it doesn't make any difference in that way. I mean, there there are some kinds of cases that this one doesn't map well, but there are some kinds of cases where maybe the the trademark you're trying to enforce is arguably descriptive, right? Or it's arguably mm-hmm. functional because it's the design of a product. Right. And there, maybe the burden of proof allocation matters to some extent about like whose job it is to prove one way or the other. But those aren't really relevant to the, you know, in the context of the Redskins mark. Mm-hmm. If in fact, so the customs thing, I guess, would be one. So, you, so it, in terms of um, making out an unconstitutional conditions case, and but for the listeners, uh, we should we should try to give our best understanding of what this doctrine is, as you alluded to, Mark. Yeah, it's kind of difficult to figure out, right? Uh, but, but the idea is that the Go government... <laughs> I don't think I want to try to do that. That's very hard to do. That, that when, when the government um, conditions a benefit on your giving up a constitutional right, that there has to be some kind of reasonable connection between those things. And so one example are, are instances where the government asks you to give up part of your physical property in exchange for some kind of permit to build. And these are so-called exactions cases. It's an, it's an application of the unconstitutional conditions doctrine. And there's a, a well-developed test, which is it for that particular area, which kind of looks at the connection between what the government, you know, the reason the government could deny the permit and the thing they're asking you to give up, right? And does that get cashed out as a takings problem in the case where there is not a sufficient connection between well, the Well, that's, that's often that? what triggers the, because you're being asked to give up your right to just compensation, right? Because uh, you're giving up a piece of your property or an easement or something like that. And so- uh, you know, you had a right not to do that without compensation. You're giving that up in exchange for this permit. And and the question is, is there a sufficient kind of connection between between those between those things? So we're in terms of the trademark restriction or the, the trademark, uh, the prohibition on registering, if if you're 
if the ground on which you're prohibited from registering relates closely to the government's interest in not allowing uh, it, it's having set up the system uh, to enhance com- commerce yeah. to be distorted into a system for groups hassling each other on bases that produce social, if not unrest, social friction. Well, uh, it's that we're trying to. I was just going to say, isn't that, there a close connection there it, between you know we're no. trying to keep our system focused on enhancing the utility of a commercial vocabulary so that producers and consumers can find each other effectively and efficiently, yeah. uh, and 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 in order for that not to get to to lose its focus and get distorted into a cudgel, people can pick up and start beating each other on on racial grounds or religious yeah. grounds or like. It seems like that's a reasonable thing for government to want to do. Let me let me back up a little bit. To though. me, anyway. Let me, let me back up just a little bit and before we apply it in that context. Because I think this context is actually more complicated. Um, uh, and the, the one that you just raised is more complicated than easier ones. So the, so some, some listeners might say, well, look, if government's asking you to waive a constitutional right in exchange for a benefit, that's got to be unconstitutional in itself, right? If you just kind of thought about it initially. And you, you see quickly that can't be right because uh, a government employee – is asked to give up their constitutional right not to show up at a building at a particular time, right? Or, or, or not to have to not say things. Uh, so I have a constitutional right not to be forced to report to the University of Georgia Law School at particular times and say particular things and not say other things, right? I mean, that, the, the government has no power to order other people to do that, right? right. But um, as a condition and, of having a job here, you, <laughs> you agree. That's that right. In exchange right. for the benefit of, of employment, I'm waiving those constitutional rights. And there's nothing wrong with that. But right? there's nothing wrong with that. So we know there are many situations in which government can condition the waiver of a constitutional right, a condition a benefit on the waiver of a constitutional right. The concern is that government will get things that it couldn't get directly because of its inherent coercive, because of the inherent kind of coercion involved in the grant of a benefit. And in the land use context, the concern is government really wants to take property. It doesn't want to pay for it. And so it holds you up to get this unrelated permit in order to take a piece of your property. Right. So you want to get a liquor license and it says, oh, we'll, we'll do that, but we want half of your property in exchange. Right. And there's if you can't show any connection between those two things, then really what's going on is government's using this power that it has in an unrelated. And people are now the inherent problem with that is that any time we ask courts to monitor the connection between um, governmental um, between valid purposes and what the government has done, that very easily bleeds over into an analysis of the effectiveness of that. Right. And and that's happened in the land use context where essentially this court becomes a kind of super legislature redoing the policy analysis, but under the guise of looking at the reasonableness of the connection. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that makes this context, uh, the trademark context, kind of difficult um, because on the one hand, uh, it, it makes perfect sense that, you know, that it, well, I don't know how you guys feel about the hypo that I raised, but if, if trademark instead said that you can't register a mark that doesn't glorify the incumbent government. That strikes all of us as totalitarian, I, I think. Am yes. I? Am I ter- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to be sure. Mark, yeah, are you I, agree I didn't with know that? If that was a question. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. All right. All right. We, so we know that this unconstitutional conditions doctrine probably ought to, re- to, to reach some cases of restrictions on trademark, right? And then the question, sure. and, but not others. Like, you know, a reason not to grant a, a, a trademark is, I, I guess, that, you know, we'll give you this trademark, but on the condition that it's not confusing to consumers and other, like, you know, so right. some, confusingly which, similar to one that's already been registered, for example. Exactly. Right. Wh- which is a ground for rejecting a mark. 
if I'm remembering correctly, mm-hmm. and, and should be, and is perfectly consistent with the idea that the whole purpose of the system is to produce this useful commercial vocabulary that accurately helps you track consumers and producers finding each other right like so preventing one that's confusingly similar goes directly to the heart of that directly to the heart of purpose so those are the seem to me the two poles of it right i mean the one is like using some limited power the government has that which commercial actors may desperately want to take advantage of and then extracting out of them some kind of propaganda propagandistic purpose right Mm -hmm. some kind of uh, and the other is where there's a direct tie between the two and this seems to me kind of in the middle so so i guess the the analysis would be and and mark maybe you want to jump in and tell us what they actually did and that's is there so there's the government benefit is getting the trademark in exchange for that benefit you give up you're giving up the right uh to to use that commercial word in a way which might be offensive to some um, and then what's the connection between that and the reason that the government would not want to give you the trademark in or, the first or instance? Or it might constrain the words you could choose, yeah, right? That's... Like it's it's not saying you can have this word as a mark, you just can't use it in these ways. It's saying, look, this can't, you can't register this word as a mark for that this That makes it stuff. more complicated, doesn't it? I mean, but yeah, so how do they, you want to tell us what they actually decided? And I mean, there's like, there's a bunch of layers to the decision, but the, <clears throat> I mean, the, the, the starting point is that it's a content and viewpoint based restriction right that you're saying basically you can have this government benefit but only on the condition that you choose this word and not that word right right um, and that that's and that you're not it's not really just about the words but it's also about like how those words are understood by a relevant group so, so that's the starting point you had there, there's a you're being asked to waive your constitutional right to say those words in this context yes. although that's a little weird for the reasons that joe mentioned like yeah. you can still use those words it's just well right so that's them. i think that's actually an interesting thing so the federal circuit by the time the on bank decision comes around doesn't say really anything about that about whether you're still entitled to use the words it's in t- it becomes entirely about what you're being asked to do as you're re- you're saying a condition of getting these additional government benefits is that you you use certain words and not other words yeah right <clears throat> so you can't you're conditioning the the provision of the extra benefits on the content of the speech right that's the that's the gist of it but then there's this other part of the court but the decision that's interesting it goes to joe's point where it says it doesn't it doesn't rescue it that it's commercial speech yeah because the the aspect of the mark you're regulating is not its commercial character but its expressive character right so by which i think they mean you're not refusing registration on the grounds that like a descriptive term that it just doesn't function like a trademark right, right? so it doesn't do the commercial work of being a trademark because it doesn't indicate source you're refusing registration to something even though you admit it might actually indicate source. So it might be doing the commercial work we want it, but for some other reason, for some expressive reason. Yeah. Right? And the court says you could separate those two things and say, um, it doesn't matter that it's commercial speech because your regulation here isn't targeting the commercial aspect of the mark. It's targeting the expressive aspect. And in so doing, trying to channel commercial discourse for other reasons unrelated to that right. to the for, to commerce what the court says for just because you disapprove of them you know it would be more it would be more directly analogous though to uh the exactions context in in land where unconstitutional conditions is maybe most developed there i mean there are other cases surely but but this seems to be a particularly developed area if in exchange for getting the trademark you agreed not to use uh offensive words in commerce there you're you're waiving a constitutional right in order to get some government benefit. In this case, like I, I, I take it that if the Redskins, the Washington Redskins wanted to register, I don't know, all kinds of other words, they could do so. 
they're just not being allowed to register this particular word, but they're being but they're but they're being allowed to say it, right? I right. mean, they, so they're being allowed. I don't think nobody disputes that they're being allowed to say it, right? There's one sort of ex, next layer, which is: are they being prevented from enforcing it in any respect, mm-hmm. right? And then you could say on top of that, okay, so let's assume that they're not being they're not being prohibited from saying it. They're also being they're allowed to enforce it. They just aren't allowed to have the benefits of federal registration. I'm just trying to hone in on what is the what is if we had to state it crisply, what is the constitutional right that they are having to give up? I actually don't think that the way you're talking about it, like I actually don't think matches the way that this the, court is. That's the federal circuit. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering how does it fit into regular. Yeah. You, you said earlier it's a weird unconstitutional conditions case. And this seems to I be one is. aspect. I don't think it. they're being asked to waive any constitutional right. Right. And for, on a condition, well, I think, because there because there is no prohibition on speech. So there's not there's no there's no penalty to them for using that word. There's no they're not being asked not to say it. And they're not and they're not saying we'll give you a registration on the condition you don't speak using this word. Right. The closest you could come is saying we'll give you the registration on the condition that you don't use this word as a trademark yeah. in this setting. Because you're being denied the the benefits of registration. Um, but not being prohibited from doing other things that you could also do. And so, for example, you, you and it's not I think it's not just the term itself. So if you were if you had, um, let's say you made covers for smartphones. Right. And they were red. I, I don't even use them. I wouldn't. And you them. and your and the mark you had for those phone, phone yeah. covers was Redskins. Yeah. Because they're red co- phone covers. Right. Um, and I, I think you'd call that suggestive. Right, because it takes a little imagination to figure out what's being referred to, and that's mm-hmm. the test for secret, which means it's inherently distinctive. Um, so you get you get protection right away, no problem. Um, and I don't, I, I think it would anyone would it occur to anyone to object on that on the ground that it was disparaging? No, I mean, the, uh, the, and so, so the substantive test for disparagement is that you have to this first decide whether, as used in the context, what's the meaning of it, right? Yeah. So if you said as used in that context, the meaning isn't to refer to a Native American group, but instead to refer to the red cover on your phone, right. then it just wouldn't implicate the right. So, the, so because so because the even though it's the very same word, because of the facts about how it's being used, the right. good in question and the meaning that a consumer would attribute to that term in the context of that good, um, it's perfectly okay, right? And but when you want to use that word in a in a context where people would attribute to it this meaning, which people in a in a a large group of that social group would say that's disparaging to my group. No. Yeah. The government wants to control the nature of discourse using this tool. Right. Uh, no. I, well, it yes. wants to it wa- control. It wants to prevent the, this tool from being used as a way to disparage people on the basis of social factors that can cause a lot of social unrest let, and bad circumstance if you let people yeah. disparage each other that way. So let's put to one side. So there's a whole show or a series of shows we could do about the difference between many European countries and other countries and the United States when it comes to hate speech and its yeah. protectability under various freedoms. And let's just not take a position on that at all and just assume we're going to take the libertarian American position on that for right now, meaning that if Congress passed a law saying that people can't use the word redskins, that it would be struck down as a violation of freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and and look, that's an arguable position. You know, I mean, right. clearly Germany takes positions on Nazi speech and and, and they can't understand us. So he, and we, here you know, to, to look here. For, so I want to take that as a given only to get to the interesting. Fine, thing, I'll right? take it as a given. But it seems to me it's the, the, the troubling thing for people who advocate that this statute is unconstitutional 
is I think it I think it would be hard to argue that it's unconstitutional for regulatory authorities to insist that um that the rear windows in cars um be structured in such a way that they don't go all the way down to uh the bottom of the window that they only go halfway down uh, be, to protect children right it, that if that were to be insisted upon rear windows in cars can only go halfway down to, because that makes it harder for kids to open them all the way and jump out of the car right so okay. cars are great they have lots of great uses. We need to make sure this can't happen because it protects safety in a particular way. Right. Right. Oh, my God, there's a First Amendment problem. No, because it's not speech. I get it. Right. But it, it's a decision to say this tool can be good, but it, we need to protect against certain dangers. Right. So the tool of a well-regulated commercial vocabulary is good, but it presents some dangers, which is it can pre- be a tool that's for social dis- unrest. Yes, that's why the dispute right? is really over whether. Was that da- crazy? What no, I just no, did I, to- that, but I think it clarifies the dispute here, or what would really, what is really the hard problem, and that is government allowed to take a position on this dispute in this way. And I think it has a nice. So the, the problem with the unconstitu- unconstitutional conditions approach, right, is we're, is we're having a hard time figuring out well what is the right that is being waived, right? And I think this nicely mirrors a really thorny problem that appeared in the Supreme Court um, a week ago. Dolly did a podcast uh, on this, on Amicus. On This is the case of the um, political non-speaker. This is the guy who went, he's an, a public employee, right. went to get a bunch of sign or a, mm-hmm. a political sign, but it was for his mother apparently. And he took no position on the, had no position, was right. totally disinterested. He wasn't but neutral. His, but he his was boss disinterested. Saw, they saw him caring. It right. was for the other candidate and he gets fired. And he gets fired. And he's so, like, wait a minute. It wasn't about me. It was about my mom. The what government the fired him because <laughs> they thought you know, this is an, an attempted free speech violation. Right. And it was, it's like, it's like those old criminal cases where someone like shoots into uh, a, a thing, into, well, not into a corpse, but into a, bed where the, the person is actually not there but it's made out like they're there and they oh, shoot yeah, the pillows yeah, yeah. and everything right. or they stab anyway so it's kind of like that the government has attempted to like strangle somebody but there was nobody there um <laughs> but the, the funny thing is there was somebody there because he actually got strang- he got fired right. right um and so you know a number of the justices were saying hey this is not how can it be an abridgment of the freedom of speech when he was not a speech a speaker like he, his first amendment rights were not violated there's another way of looking at that that says the first amendment is is not necessarily about um or not only about what you're doing, it's really a restriction on government power, mm-hmm. right? And and it requires us to look at government reasons and to say government can't do things for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I see the parallel you're making. So I guess I'm, as I'm listening to Joe, I'm starting to think, you know, one of the reasons why it's important to say that it doesn't restrict anybody's speech and it's just a, a government benefit is I think you could say, it's, this isn't about whether the government's taking sides in the speech. It's about whether someone should be able to use the government apparatus to actually amplify their speech, right? In mm-hmm. other words, should they should someone be able to benefit from additional government, you know, government enforceability in order to amplify speech, right? Just sort of like saying, you know, the speech might otherwise just sort of the government might say, like, I, I got to stay out of it. You can use that word or not right. use the word, but they're actually. These people are not just asking the government to stay out. They're actually asking the government to give me stuff to make it easier for me to use this word yeah. more offensively. To lend it strength. Right. Lend my usage it's, more strength. It's a little bit physically like uh, the government's got a bunch of megaphones and and they're just handing them out to people. Maybe they're the only megaphones around, actually. And and they and the government says, OK, we'll give you one of these. But what are you going to say? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and here are our rules for what you can say with our yeah. megaphones. And, and And maybe it's a little bit like that. But then you yeah. have to deal with the problem of the, un- unless you're willing to embrace it, 
of the rule, which says you can only have one of our megaphones if you speak to the glory of President Barack Obama or if you glorify the government. But if you say anything which doesn't glorify the government, then we take it away. You can't you can't have it. You need a rule. And I think the rule that captures that is that what we really are concerned about is the government's purpose. Right. What, why, I mean, what is I think it trying it's sort to of do? Bleeding into the question of government speech, too. Right. So. It's, yeah. So it's actually it's not I guess it's not totally obvious to me that the government couldn't decide whether it was going to give its own megaphones out to people based on the content of their speech, right? As long as it's not prohibiting other people from using their own megaphones or telling them that they can't say certain things when they're doing it. Like the government, I think there's a bunch of cases that pretty much say the government gets to decide which things it wants to speak about. When it's the speaker, right. And presumably there's a fine line between the government deciding to amplify someone's speech and the government speaking itself. Right. Right. And so that's what's making this difficult. I right? certainly think it's OK for the government to say we're, we're handing out these microphones um, and uh, and you can't defame people while you're speaking through the microphone. And the fact that we handed you the microphone doesn't immunize you to defame people. Right? Yes, but that's because you think that there's nothing wrong with a rule against defamation to begin with. Precisely. It, well, so figuring out w- whether um, the 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 fact that we've decided we want to facilitate speech in this way. Um, commits us to facilitating speech, period, like there's nothing further we can say about it? Or can we continue to pick and choose traditionally? And we would say, yes, you can choose the traditional categories. You don't need to immunize people for de- for defamation. Okay. Well, but is that the only thing I can do? Or can I go, can I, can I maybe trench back a little further than that and do some things I wouldn't be able to do uh, as a government to to uh, limit people's ability to use this tool as a speech mm-hmm. tool in a certain way, right? Um, because, of course, you know, they don't have to have a trademark system at all, right? The government doesn't have to have a registration system to strengthen trademarks. It could have just said, well, common law of trademark is fine, right? We're not obliged to do any of this You're not going to make a greater includes the lesser argument here, are you? Um, because the greater power not to have a trademark system at all doesn't include the lesser power to have one only for white people. No, I understand that. Yeah. I understand that. Um, the so-called lesser the, power. Right. Yeah. Um, so, it, and the, which is a way of just restating the unconstitutional unconstitution conditions doctrine. Exactly. Right. It yeah. is a refutation of the greater includes the lesser. And yeah. I get that. Yeah. Um, so, no, I'm not trying to say that that's a winning argument. I'm trying to say it's, it's, it gets us back into the same problem. Uh, which is to work through, is it, am I limited to those common law pr- categories of, of recognized wrongs that I don't have to immunize people against? Okay, or can I do more than that when I'm creating this new tool? And I don't see why the answer is so obviously, no, you can't go, you know, you can't go beyond the common law categories of our understanding. So that's, that's why I think the right analysis is not the within the strictures of the unconstitutional conditions doctrine. And look, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, right? Yeah, so well, take it are, for what it's worth. We all are. Uh, but instead, to look at what the government's overall objective is and whether its objective is one which is abridging of the freedom of speech. Is it trying to warp what otherwise would be a, a private, and, I, and I'm not a fan of the marketplace of ideas metaphor, but let's just say that like a, a a marketplace of speech or a private arena of speech, is it trying to warp that? So is it trying to warp commercial discourse? Or is it um, in another context, and I'm not sure which one this is, or is it trying, or is it in in an area where it's trying to send its own messages and that's okay, right? It's not, like this is clearly, although these are private actors, this is part of a 
of a public program, and right. and that's you know that seems so to me hard. And it gets into the public forum stuff. You know, this is all making my head feel like I'm going to explode. Because I, 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 two things: the first is, I think when you describe it that way, is it trying to warp what what other bees? It sort of posits that there's some natural or neutral uh, form in which this discourse would take place if the government would just sort of stay out of it, right? Mm-hmm. But I actually I think that's just not true, right? That so the the nature of the commercial discourse is deeply affected by the existence of the trademark system. Right. The fact that the, you know, there are all these rights that come along with and the, and the, and the nature of the, the rights that, you know, that the kinds of speech they're able to stop with other people. So I don't think it's possible to kind of like take one piece and disentangle it and say, there's some sort of state of nature, commercial discourse that the government's trying to warp right. in one way or the other, because it's just a baseline question. Like you of could course. say, yeah, we could say this is the kind of discourse that would be if the government would just let them be. Or you could say, well, actually, if the government weren't amping up these speech rights in the first place, then they actually they would all look very different. And so and I, I don't know. Right. You could take one piece of the Lanham Act and say, you can't pretend like there aren't distorting. megaphones here. Yeah, right, right, there's right, tons so, of yeah. megaphones going on. And, right. And, and given if they that, get the registration, they're going to be able to stop other people from speaking. Right. And and given that there are certainly. We think if uh, if if the Naval Academy is deciding what mascot to have for a sports team and we say they don't have to call them the Redskins, the Naval Academy, they could choose to call them something else. Why? Because the government gets to decide when it's the speaker, it gets to decide how it wants to speak and it doesn't have to speak in a way that it thinks exacerbates racial tensions by disparaging a racial group. Okay, I almost cool. feel like I've now decided that like everything <laughs> I thought about this, I've turned upside down in the last 15 minutes. Because <laughs> So I sort of came into this thinking that the government's speech argument was kind of just totally specious, like that the mm-hmm. government obviously wasn't engaging in government speech because if you look at the like the whole list of everything the government's registered it registers things that are kind of from all over the spectrum right right and on the other hand i sort of like i still have some nagging suspicion that like this isn't a restriction on speech it's just a denial of a government benefit and like there's got to be something in that now i'm sort of thinking well there's sort of like an interesting interplay between the two of these things right the more the bigger deal it is to deny someone a registration the more it kind of looks like government speech right the more you're sort of saying, we don't want to put our imprimatur on that. And that's why it's such a big deal, right, to get to not get the registration. But that makes it almost sort of seem like then the unconstitutional condition problem is bigger, right? So it's like they're sort of in conflict with each other, like where it looks more like government. It doesn't look yeah. very much to me like government speech if the benefit of the registration is just this purely incidental thing, right? Because then it's yeah. not very persuasive for the government to say, we don't want to help that if you're just you're not even really helping it. Right. You're just doing yeah. some sort of inner. The more the government benefit looks like a big deal, the more it seems plausible that actually it is the government helping you. Right. It is giving yeah, you a bigger really is a hard case. I mean, to locate where the denial of registration is on the spectrum between you don't have a First Amendment right to make the government endorse your views in the words you would use to state them. Yeah. Nor does the government have the power to prescribe to you the things, the views you should hold and how you should state them. Right. Those two things are out of bounds. Where is this? Where is denying registration in yeah. between those two things? So that seems like we're. It should come as no surprise that I think the public-private distinction looms large here, and, and that um, Ooh, say more that, about that. Well, that that part of the issue when you say we, it's like saying it's a big deal or not a big deal seems to me to be important, but not to describe the full dimensions of the problem. And it's it, it seems like we're making in our heads a a, 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 a choice, or we're kind of caught between different ideas about whether this is uh, this program of of trademark discourse is one in which 
to accomplish its purposes best, we want people independently to make self-interested decisions, totally, or one where we want some kind of agency to broader principles, which would be more public, right? So is this in the same way that you would try to figure out, you know, whether we want this to be government speech because we want uh, our purposes of this program are to engage in public-minded discourse, okay? So in that situation, we want it to be government speech. And if we're going to let private parties speak in that way, it's only to accomplish that purpose better and we're going to restrict them to carrying the government's message. But, but what, whether we think that's okay depends on whether we think whether we're okay with two things. One, with the government sending that message, right, in that context, and two, with the agency relationship that it has with the private individuals. If, on the other hand, though, this is an area where the kind of speech going on is one in which we think the public interest is best served by private people acting for their own interests, then we're concerned about government shaping that discourse, because it interferes with the purpose of the... So if you're like a Holmesian marketplace of ideas person and you've identified a place and a kind of discourse which you think better serves the nation by being a true like private libertarian marketplace of ideas, then you're going to be concerned about government coming in there and creating or stamping an orthodoxy on it, even with strong incentives, because the difference between a strong incentive and a coercion can be you know difficult to tell. In this case, it comes down to trying to understand what we're trying to accomplish with the trademark program and how the trademark program interacts with commercial discourse more broadly. One thing that gets lost in a lot of these conversations is like it's, it sounds as if the only speech interests have to do with the, those people trying to acquire trademarks, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's useful to remember that the existence of a trademark system already shapes, or if you want to say warps, the commercial speech marketplace, because once I hand you a registration or I hand you any enforceable trademark rights, you now have the ability to shut down other commercial right. speech, right? Right. And and at least some, and then some circuits, maybe things that aren't even obviously commercial speech, right? So it's uh, to me, it's inseparable from, the, it's impossible to have a trademark system and not admit that the government is shaping the marketplace for commercial speech. Right. right, and then I think our only question is: on what basis is it is it permissible for the court to do for the government to do that? Right. So that's why I think it's important to think of like: is the nature of the shaping it's doing consistent with the purpose of that zone of discourse? Right. And the, and, and so in this case, me, is like it, the most interesting thing is when the court sort of defi- distinguishes between the commercial aspects of the speech and the expressive aspects. Right. So yeah. the core purposes of trademark law are about helping regulate the commercial marketplace, making it easier for consumers to find their way around, make it easier for companies to sort of signal to people who, right? And so the instinct the court has here is that this isn't a regulation that goes to that, right? It's a Mm -hmm. regulation that goes to something else. It goes to some other expressive component. And it seems like an unconstitutional conditions case because there's a benefit and government's doing something which is connected to the First Amendment. And it might actually, there might be a way of describing it that way, but what it seems to me like more of a direct First Amendment question, right? Is government intervening in this zone of, it's, in some ways it's already there, right? And yeah. it, it, the commercial, like there are all kinds of rules against like, you know, lying and advertising. You know, the, the commercial marketplace is shot through with governmental regulation, mm-hmm. right? But in understanding what, what the limits are of public decision-making in that zone, it calls for us constantly to reevaluate what the purposes of that zone are. 
And with with respect to trademark, and that's maybe that maybe that's what's making it difficult. We're getting a little crisscrossing, right? So when it comes to trademark, I think most people, like you guys, would know better than than I would. But you know, when I teach like the simple cases in property, it's always about identifying sources to, for for uh, two reasons: to encourage quality, right? Because if because if consumers always associate a term with a particular source, then you'll do better if you make that your product better. They'll come shop. And the other is to make it cheaper for consumers to shop. So they don't have to, if they see a, a trademark name, they don't have to go to further investigations to see if that really comes from the person they think it does. So, it, you know, there's efficiency gains uh, come from this. Now, if that's the, if that's the purpose of the governmental intervention here is, is to improve the commercial, it, to improve commercial outcomes by putting constraints on that, on the discourse in that way, then this seems to come out of left field, right? This seems to be about shaping ideas within that zone of discourse. And that seems more like a direct kind of First Amendment problem if you view the First Amendment as a restriction on governmental interventions for for purposes which are contrary to um, freedom of expression. Yeah, I think that's that that's a totally plausible way of thinking about it. I think that it raises, as I said earlier today at lunch too, then it raises some other interesting questions, which is that there are other aspects of trademark law that do that, right, that prevent other people's uses of a term for reasons that aren't about confusion or deception, right? right. So particularly like so dilution, what are some of these? dilution yeah. Yeah. especially the tarnishment provision, which is basically like you're not allowed to use somebody else's trademark in a way that sort of ma- look, makes it look bad, right? Cast it in bad light. So the, the commercial sounding version of that description is to say, well, the purpose of the trademark system is in part to promote the brand value, right? right? To make it so that, you know, uh, trademarks always sort of mean what they say they're going to mean and that there's no sort of ambiguity about that. But usually we think about that meaning that trademarks mean what they're supposed to mean in a source sense, right? They mean that they refer to this particular company. Dilution, especially by tarnishment, is really about whether not that content of the mark is upset, but whether you used to like Mickey Mouse and now you kind of think he's yucky. Yeah, this is why this is a terrible, terrible intervention in trademark law i think so i mean i think most most, most academics scholars are, are against opposed, it, right? to, yeah. opposed to it but i think if if you phrase things about the sort of ban, the ban on registration the way you just did yeah right where you say like the only things that are permissible would be regulations that go to the purposes of the and then you define those purposes in relation to helping people find sort you know things because of source sign, signification then it sounds to me like if this goes out, so does tarnishment. Well, I I, I don't want to say it quite that way. I, I, what I want to say is that um, in in understanding the limits of governmental shaping and channeling of discourse within a particular zone, you have to take account of why you want that zone to operate in the first place. Right. And so it's not that it's not that within the trademark regime or within the Lanham Act you can only have one particular purpose, right? But you have to evaluate new things that you do which deviate from that purpose against the basic, you know, sea of purposes that you're allowing, you know, lying, you know, it could be truth and advertising. There are all mm-hmm. kinds of other restrictions, like I said, on mm-hmm. in that. And this one, though, seems to me to be different. And like you said, you know, a lot of people are not a fan uh, of tarnishment yeah. to begin with. And I don't know that the vulnerability of that doctrine is going to pull at the heartstrings no i don't either i just think it's 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 a sort of interesting reflection of where we are in first amendment law that like this is the thing that becomes the obvious first amendment issue oh yeah and that not so much aren't there plenty of cases where someone like registers amazon sucks.com or uh, or uses maybe makes uh, a redskins suck penance kind of thing. Yeah, there are. And and trademark law has kind of evolved some doctrines to try to deal with those things. 
some of which have gotten better over the last years. But Joe and I were just talking on the way over here, though. Um, many courts in trademark law assiduously try to uh, avoid making that into a constitutional question. They try to think, like, we're just going to develop some internal... Fair use, right? Yeah, something internal to trademark law so as not to see that as a constitutional question. Well, so too in copyright. I mean, we have the fair use in, in copyright is statutory, but the court has gone, has said before, right, that this is, it has a constitutional origin. There's a constitutional need for a fair use doctrine. Mm-hmm. Is this the same thing's going on in, in trademark, right? It maybe, maybe. I mean, maybe what all I'm saying is that if you accept the argument in the context of registration, then you have to kind of see some of these other doctrines as at least having a constitutional floor to them, mm-hmm. right? That right. there's some... Which you might not have recognized before. Yeah. But right. surely people are going to start saying, oh, well, the better explanation for that is this First Amendment theory, not this other statutory theory or some other inchoate notion. Mm-hmm. I mean, I said to Joe on the way over here, I mean, I sort of think a lot of con law is just a little game anyway. So I'll put, <laughs> putting my own cards on the table. I think a lot of this is going to come down to whether people think that the government has a real interest here, right? Whether this is yeah. like something the government should do. And my sense is that like, uh, when I went to law school, I was always taught compelling government interest meant the government lost, right? That right. Governments never had a compelling government interest. So if if we thought that was true here, then probably this is unconstitutional because it's not a compelling government interest. But, you know, most of the Lanham Act is about protecting private commercial interests. And like, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have thought that was a compelling government interest either. Right. right once upon a time. So what I mean by the sport is like it's going to be in- it's interesting to see sort of which things rise to the level now is counting as compelling government interests and which ones don't. What do you think, Joe? It's it's pretty appealing to me to posit that um, that a, a, when the public decides to create a tool that people can use in a way that everyone agrees is really productive and helpful and pro-social, um that the government needs to have a fair bit of leeway in ensuring that it also, when it creates that tool, guards against abuse of it. That it make that makes sense. But right? but and and, yeah. and that lends to look at this and say you've got a fair amount of flexibility to to both create the tool and guard against abuse of that tool. Um, be, because if you think about it, all right, you use so, the word abuse. Don't use the word abuse. You see, you're that's. Uh, you see what you, I mean? Anti-social uses of the tool, right? But it's got pro-social that. uses and it's got uses that it's even got uses. The that, whole problem is whether we're going to allow the government to define what is pro-social and anti-social. Yes, that is the problem. But of course, we it, it is us. And so can majorities do this or not? Right. Right. And so we're making. So what we're saying is in a way, what we could be saying is, look, um, uh, the a majority has to decide to have this tool at all. Because once it decides to have the tool, it's not allowed to take further steps to ensure that it's that it's used in some ways and not other ways. So it it, it can't the 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 price of getting that benefit is having to live with all the costs because you're not allowed to treat them as costs and try to guard against them. Uh, well, then fine, maybe we shouldn't have the tool at all. Then right, you're making the choice much more fateful because you're saying it's you you've got to take all the bad with whatever good you might have obtained. But, well, that boy, now I don't want the good anymore, right? Because I, I don't get to be more selective about how this tool gets used. Um, that might not be a great idea. It might be okay. What, what, if, a, might, what, if, a city, what if a city runs a subway system? Yeah. And it, and it does that because it wants people to be able to, and, and suppose this is their primary objective, right, at whatever time, is to let people get to work sooner in order to increase the productivity of citizens. Yeah. That's the primary justification and all of the spreadsheets were worked out by looking at the, the right. increase. 
But the government says, you know what? There are some enterprises that actually hurt us as a people, including, you know, think of your favorite racist organizations, or if you want to make the, <laughs> if you want to make the example like culturally easier to accept is legitimate. Um, but if you want to make it harder, assume the government is more malevolent within that cultural framework and right. actually wants to, uh, doesn't believe that any kind of um, religious enterprises or, or, or um, uh, progressive enterprises, you know, whatever you want to say, that none of these are good, right? So it says we're going to make this available, but not if you're going to a job at one of these places. And you say it makes available this tool for this reason, but it doesn't want to do that in a way that supports these things that it dislikes. And the question seems to me to come down again. And I'm just thinking out loud. I, right, I may listen right. back to this and think, what an idiot. Why are you saying these things? But the question <laughs> seems to me to come down again to whether the, the, the zone of discourse into which the government has inserted a tool to make that discourse more effective um, is such that we want decisions about that kind of content made um, atomistically, individually, for self-interested reasons. In other words, we don't want the government to make these content choices, or whether that is a particular area in which we are okay with or think that it is necessary or just want the government to make, uh, we want decisions about the shape of discourse to be at least influenced by democratic notions, by, by where, where we enforce right. some kind of agency, right? So publicly made yeah. rules. And well, that, you know. I think your subway example, I mean, it just puts your finger on exactly why unconstitutional conditions doctrine is so intractable, right? Which mm -hmm. is that we all think that the government should, under some circumstances, be able to impose some, some conditions on the things that they're doing. We all also think there's some conditions they shouldn't be allowed to put on. Right. right. And you can't so, get on the subway without a, without a shirt. Or if you're say. black, right? Like you well, can't that, get on that the would subway. Be, yeah, those are two <laughs> Obviously, extremes. Obviously, that's a yeah. And you could imagine, it doesn't t take much imagination in this country to remember that a time when like that would have been a, what people would have thought was a pro-social choice, right? Sure. So, or setting the fee to write it at a dollar instead of $10, right? Some, some were setting it at 10 rather than one. Um, you know, some people will, what at a price you set, some people will be kept off the train because they can't afford right. to pay it. So, so, everyone thinks so like making any choices has implications for who gets to use it and who doesn't get to use it. So, which means that all of this comes down to at the end of the day, like, do you feel like this is a condition the government should get to impose? Right. And that's why I think the, the law is intractable because there's no, it's, that's not really a principle. I don't think it's more of like, uh, we all think there's some con conditions they should get to impose. And I think like most people would agree in at a very high level of generality with everything Joe said, right? Which is government creates a tool. The government should have some degree of latitude in defining the conditions under which that tool is used, right? I think that's pretty clearly the case. On the other hand, like there's some conditions that we could all imagine that we would all find really objectionable. And so the reason the cases to me all feel ad hoc is because they feel like a court just sort of saying, yeah, that one's okay. That one's not okay. Now, you did the standard Christian move, which is to say, okay, instead of talking about the choice, talk about who makes the choice, right? right. So you were talking about, is it a public choice or a private choice? Exactly. That's, your, that's the Christian yeah. move. And I was, I've, I've been resisting that, though. Right? I've been saying, like, yeah. I think that that's an impossible decision to make in the trademark context because it's not, there is no state of nature commercial discourse independent of the choices made in the trademark system. There, that's right. There are there's there is a a web of public regulations of the commercial marketplace of the of which this is one, and those public regulations are not just responsive to private choices, but they also they constitute them. those right. private choices. Absolutely. This is a standard kind of crit move, and right. it's correct. But that doesn't mean that when we analyze 
the the choices made through public regulation, we can't think about whether they are uh, whether those choices would be met- better made by uh, kind of again kind of atomistically separated, privately self interested people. Like so, I, I think we can say in a in a um, in a town hall forum to use Michael John's example of the freedom of speech, you know, we may say that the question of like how, how long the thing lasts and how the, um, the system for queuing and all of that, like we need some organization about that. And so we want collectively to set the rules for who gets up to speak when, et cetera. But once someone has chosen the content of what they say, we may think that we benefit from hearing the, unfiltered, unvarnished comments of our peers. And so for, do we want a regulation which says you can talk but uh, on, on this topic, but within this topic, you can only take certain viewpoints? And the standard reaction is that, uh, or the standard kind of constitutional reaction is no, that kind of viewpoint discrimination is bad once you've set up a forum like that. And I think the reason for that has to do with whether you think choices about uh, 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 which viewpoints others should be exposed to that we think that's a betterly that's betterly we think that's better made through atomistic private decision making because it gives a greater menu of op, you know your standard kind of justifications yeah. and so here too i think we've got to think about that you know and I've there, there a, yeah i've got a comparison to um and this is a, i love this conversation in the way that it is made it's just Super, super problematized this. Oh boy, there's this a, legal thing, right? Joe, now I feel you much. Out the P word. I feel much less <laughs> the, uh, law, the law sure professor's P word. Clear about oh what I think the right answer is here. Yeah, by virtue but, of this conversation, but much there's no less, ambiguity about what the answer is going to be. Fair enough. I'm reminded of the conversations I, I that either we've had or I've heard or in our environment about the different ways you can conceptualize equal protection law mm. and right. a, in affirmative action and other contexts where you're talking about the difference between colorblindness and an anti-subordination principle. Right. And I feel that the colorblindness is the move that says Congress can't deny trademark registration on these grounds. I think the anti-subordination principle is the one that says, sure, it can. Sure, it can prohibit registration on these grounds. Mm. Because... Um, to, to say that when we set up this commercial vocabulary system, um, we don't want it to become a, a it's, we don't want people to profit commercially from a disparaging discourse that subordinates some people to other people in, in the body politic. That's yeah, bad the, for the body that's politic. That's building on that particular example. I actually think the analogy is different. I think the colorblindness here, the colorblind argument is the person who gets up before the registration says government can't tell me what to say. I can say whatever I want, right? You you can't take any sides here among any of among any of these things, unless you have a compelling interest, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's that strong version of it, the one which would apply the compelling interest test, even to laws that try to advantage historically disadvantaged people in the right. equal protection case, right? Whereas the the anti caste or anti subordination principle, I think the analogy is 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 instead the person who gets up and 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 says the problem with what you're doing, government, is that you are. Uh, warping the conversation and i know i don't want to drag us back into the issue of baselines yeah. but I, I i'm completely on board with that problem right uh but the, the the problem here is that you are trying to distort speech in a way that goes to the core of the first amendment anti-orthodoxy principle i think the anti-orthodoxy principle is the equivalent of the anti-subordination principle mm-hmm. the the libertarian speaker is the 
is the equivalent of the colorblindness principle. Interesting. I think. I mean, so there are plenty of, con- you know, I've yeah. got no problem with all kinds of restrictions on speech when I don't think that what government is trying to do is to create, you know, a mini North Korea in one area or another, you know? Yep. I, I think know. we've, uh, I think we've done what we can do here today. <laughs> do you think so, Mark? I don't, uh, I, I feel like I keep repeating, I, I, I naively keep repeating the same kinds of arguments and I don't know when I no, listen I back if I, I hate it, but. I, I, uh, I have felt all along, I said to Joe earlier, like I, 14 years ago when I, right before I first started working as an, as an academic, I tried to write a paper about this. Uh, and, really? And I, I could never do it because I could never figure out what the answer should be. And I, uh, and I feel like I've, I've not made any progress in 14 years. <laughs> like I've crystallized why I think there's a problem, but I think it's because like I, f- I can find persuasive at any given time, different characterizations of the problem. And I think it does come down to an unconstitutional conditions question. And I think I just don't know how to feel about that. Hmm. Okay. Um, second topic. No, no, we're done. I'm gaveling us to a close. You know, you know what, um, speaking of, uh, like, uh, so-and-so sucks.com. Yeah. Um, you know what sucks about this whole situation? Christian Turner sucks.com, for example. (laughs) It's, I'm sure it's taken. (laughs) (laughs) It will be in a minute. (laughs) What sucks about this situation is that, uh, that other topic I mentioned about, uh, fair use and, and educational materials, all these, like, we've got Mark here. Like he's right here, you know what I mean? And, and, and like your wisdom on these top, and you're going to be gone soon. Well, you know, you know how to call me. That's that's true. We do yeah. know how to call you. I want to thank the people who sent in suggestions about knitting podcasts. I have not listened to any of them yet, uh, but uh, oh, we got is, we this got is, multiple wait, wait, suggestions wait, 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 from wait, multiple wait, listeners. Wait, 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 wait! You need to leave a little space here so I can drop in the little stinger, the little jingle, which indicates this is. The Knitting with Joe segment. We already dealt with Joe's quandary, the JQ segment earlier. It's a very short segment, which is, thank you, listeners, for sending me recommendations for knitting podcasts, to which I've not yet listened, but soon will. Thank you. uh, Another bit of feedback that we got, and we're not going to go through all the feedback right now, No, because you're going to make one more remark and then we're done. Oh, my God. Do it. Did you see Bunny tweeted at us the Speed Trap website? Speedtrap.org. Mark, did we ask you last time you were on about, about whether you um, flash your lights? No. Do let's, you? Let's do that. Now. So are you a flasher? Oh, boy. <laughs> By which I mean merely, do you flash <laughs> your headlights at oncoming cars if you passed a police cruiser that's in a speed trap uh, scenario? I, I do not. Hmm. Yeah. I thought you were a nice person. <laughs> if you If you were a passenger in a car with another driver who flashed their lights in that situation would you uh start castigating them and no. persuading them not to do that anymore no okay do you believe that it's possible to see lights during the day <laughs> you're such a bastard wow, this is getting metaphysical <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this, that's a deep cut isn't it Joe? Yeah. it's a super deep, deep. It's a deep cut you gotta two... go way back in the archive and unwind that bastard <laughs> in two senses that is a deep cut oh it's a deep burn and a deep cut it was a deep cut that burned deeply (laughs) i feel like so uh it's been so many episodes since we've had a deep speed trap wall discussion and uh, and i will bow to your desire to end the podcast and not and not prolong it other than to say i'm concerned that our status as the world's leading podcast authority on speed trap law is in danger if we don't come back to this issue soon yeah (laughs) 
I share your concern. I think we, I as think anyone it, would. I, yeah. yeah, I think it might be long past time, actually. But all right, well, I'm going to end it here because I've got some home maintenance. Yes, not to as do. we know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've got some things I need not to fix. Yeah, yeah. All right. See you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you.